Hello, greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters, and thank you for the gift of spending time together with us as we continue to explore what God has made known in Scripture that we can more effectively glorify Him. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. Why is compassion a fundamental characteristic of righteousness in the Christian life? And why do we resist compassion? How can we make sure we continue to feel? Love to know what you think about that. Why don't you let us know what you think about that? Why is compassion a fundamental characteristic of righteousness in the Christian life? And why do we resist it? And, and what can we do to make sure that we still feel? Because when we think about perhaps a child dying of starvation, or a woman who has lost her family to the ravages of war, or a family that's lost everything they owned in a natural disaster, in a fire or an earthquake or a hurricane. When you hear these things, or you see pictures of them, what do you feel inside? We should feel some sorrow for that tragedy, but there should also be something more. When we see these things or hear of these things, our heart has a desire to reach out to the people who are suffering these things. And that impulse that we have to reach out to people can be called compassion. And I hope that we're going to see today that compassion is a very important part of the Christian life and essential to the practice of righteousness. But what is compassion? Well, it can be a difficult thing sometimes because we've got different words involved. And there's nuances sought from meanings that sometimes really aren't there. Uh, the word compassion comes from Latin cum in passio. Cum is with and passio suffering, so it's suffering or feeling with. And the Greek equivalent uh, is sympathos, from which we derive sympathy. And it's the same thing, feeling with or suffering with. Uh, Webster defines compassion as a suffering with another, painful sympathy, a sensation of sorrow excited by the distress or misfortunes of another, pity or commiseration. Compassion is a mixed passion, compounded of love and sorrow. At least some portion of love generally attends the pain of regret or is excited by it. Extreme distress of an enemy even changes enmity into at least temporary affection. As we can see, Webster decided to wax poetic when it comes to explaining compassion. A sympathy is thus described by him as a fellow feeling, the quality of being affected by the affection of another, with feelings by the affection of another, with feelings corresponding in kind if not in degree. We feel sympathy for another when we see him in distress or when we are informed of his distresses. The sympathy is correspondent feeling of pain or regret, an agreement of affections or inclinations, or a conformity of natural temperament which makes two persons pleased with each other. Again, that's a intense uh, definition, isn't it? All of them talking about the idea of fellow feeling. Uh, a very important term to consider also is empathy. According to the American Heritage Dictionary, empathy is identification with an understanding of another situation's feelings and motives, the attribution of one's own feelings to an object. And of course, pity, the feeling or suffering of one person excited by the distresses of another, sympathy with the grief or misery of another, compassion or fellow suffering, as Webster defines it. You know, we see these words, and really, compassion and sympathy, empathy and pity, all could and generally can refer to that feeling we have toward other people. Um, but sympathy, we've kind of started to associate with, and really get into that sum there, that with, that it's a situation where the sympathizer has gone through a similar experience as the one uh, that they're sympathizing with. 
that if you see somebody who has lost a parent and you have lost a parent, that you can sympathize with them. Whereas somebody who has not yet lost a parent may not be able to sympathize as much because they have not gone through a similar experience. Empathy is kind of the big buzzword now that refers to the mental recognition of that suffering uh, and wants to create that association with the recognition that they have not gone through that same experience. I I can understand how you feel that way. So we can empathize with somebody who has a very difficult plight, but a plight that we do not share. Uh, And empathy really has kind of become the word that we use to describe that openness of feeling toward uh, people in other circumstances. Pity is a word that has been kind of relegated to the dustbin, mostly because, well, it has the same meaning as the rest of them. It has a very uh, patronizing connotation, that a superior feels pity toward an inferior. And as uh, we have moved more in an egalitarian direction in our society, that... um, uh, that level of hierarchy involved in pity seems to mean that term is not used as much. And the one who is pitied tends to be in a much more humiliated position, and that's why that term is avoided. And we're going to use compassion to kind of package all of these words together, because even though compassion could certainly mean the same as sympathy, because it's the same word, compassion kind of is still there as a gen- general word to describe that whole range of feelings that we have toward others. That feeling might be based just in the mental recognition of their difficulty. You know, I have never experienced that in a million years, but I can mentally recognize that if you're in that situation, you are going through this suffering. It can also be based upon shared experiences of suffering. And that feeling that we have is what compels us to reach out in a time of need. And this is something that is very much expected Uh, of the Christian. Um, That compassion is something that we are to show uh, toward our fellow man uh, in Christ. Uh, In Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 12, the Apostle Paul declares that uh, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, we should put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Uh, Interesting that uh, compassion is one of the first attributes listed there. And if we want to see a model of compassion, we should look no further than to Jesus himself. Uh, and in fact, we are to heed Jesus' example in 1 John 2, 6, to walk even as he walked. In Matthew 9, verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless without a shepherd. And that's Matthew and also Mark and Mark 6, 34's description in general of Jesus' disposition toward the crowds. He would go and teach in their synagogues and, and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom in all their villages. And he would see their illnesses and their difficulties. And, and he felt for them and felt with them. And that is what motivated him uh, to do his work. And also, he told his disciples, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And therefore, they should pray earnestly for the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. That they should go out and show compassion on others as well. In Matthew chapter 14, we have a very touching situation that Jesus shows here. In the beginning of the chapter, we're told that John the Baptist has been killed by Herod. And Jesus uh, feels this deeply. Uh, John the Baptist is a relative, according to Luke's gospel, uh, a cousin of some sort, and of course the forerunner. And um, so Jesus is affected by this. And 
So he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. In verse 13. But the crowds heard this. They followed him. And so when he comes ashore, he comes back down the hill. He sees this great crowd. And he's in his own grief and pain. But when he sees the crowd, he has compassion on them. And so even though he's going through his own thing, that didn't stop him from feeling uh, the grief and pain of others as well. And that's a very important part of compassion, is that uh, it's not something where, because we're in distress, we can't feel distress for others. In fact, it's because we are in distress that that often opens us up to feel uh, the distresses that others experience. In Matthew 15 and verse 32, and uh, Mark 8 and verse 2, a situation where they were hungry. The people were hungry, and he had compassion on them, and the, this led him to feed the 4,000. In Luke 7 and verse 13, uh, when he hears of a widow who has lost her son, the last real connection she has to much of anything, he feels great compassion and heals that child. And also, uh, Jesus will talk about this feeling of compassion in parables. And it comes at very important moments in parables. Uh, in Luke chapter 10, the very famous parable of that passage is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the parable of the Good Samaritan of course, we have this, this Jewish guy beaten up by robbers as he heads from Jerusalem to Jericho. And a priest and Levite come by. And the priest and Levite are, uh, see the man. They don't feel for him. They are motivated by their concern for purity, their concern for fastidiousness of the law, and maybe they're just busy. They're, they're on their own, their own mindset. Then we have a Samaritan come by. And, of course, the Samaritan in, in those days is a half-breed. He's not really uh, Jewish, uh, but he yet confesses the God of Israel. And, uh, I mean... The, the Jewish people did not like the Samaritans to the point when, when they would go between Galilee and Judea, they would cross over the Jordan River to go around Samaria most of the time, which was a ton of work because you had to go all the way down to the River Valley and all the way back up to take the roads down south. It would take a long time, but that's what they would do to avoid Samaria, right? So the Samaritan who's going down the road, uh, who, who he sees this man who had fallen, the robbers had fallen upon him, and in verse 33, he felt compassion. He had compassion. And that's what motivated him to uh, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, put him on his donkey, whatever animal he had, and take him to the inn and taking care of him. And, and that's why he proved to be a neighbor to the man who had fall, the robbers had fallen upon. Because he had had compassion. In Luke 15 and verse 20, another very important parable, the prodigal son. The prodigal son, you know, his father was dead to him. Give me my share of the inheritance. And he leaves and, and lives in riotous living. And the father knows this. But when the father sees the son coming back and understands that the son's coming back has meant the son has been broken. He feels compassion. And that leads him to this extravagantly shameful thing of running and embracing him and kissing him. Uh, when the sun should be coming and groveling, he runs out to the sun. Um, so very, and so that's a hallmark of the Father. And of course, we're supposed to see uh, the Heavenly Father very transparently in that parable. And so Jesus not only showed compassion and lived according to compassion, when he goes into these very important moments of teaching, uh, demonstrates the importance of displaying compassion to people. And um, in James 5.11, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
he sees that specific about the steadfastness of Job. But the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Uh, the Lord suffers with. And in Hebrews author, you know, that he has been tempted with, uh, like we are yet without sin, uh, that he has suffered in every respect uh, and learned obedience to the things that he suffered in Hebrews 4, 15, 5, 11. These are, 5, 8, excuse me, these are the things that mark who Jesus is. And it's very interesting to see the word used in Greek. You know, we've talked about sumpathos, and we see all these felt compassion. It's not sumpathos. It's splanknizomai, which is a great verb to try to say. It's splanknizomai. Uh, one of those things that we really, you know, it's very hard for the, the English tongue to say because we just don't put letters together like that. And it literally means movement in one's bowels or entrails. And the reason why it's such a great word is so visceral. It, it, it's, it, it's a word that you feel more than can describe. And it's that gut-wrenching moment, right? When you see somebody hurting and you got that stomach churning, right? Or you feel like your intestines kind of turning, that's splunknizomai. And so we are told that Jesus, when he sees the crowds, he has that gut-turning moment. When he sees uh, people in distress, he has that gut-turning moment. This good, the Samaritan, when he sees that man in the road, has that gut-turning moment. The, the father in the parable of the prodigal son, seeing his son afar off, has that gut-turning moment. And that is the great great and powerful thing. And that's, that's what God has felt for us and what God would have us feel toward others. But why? Why compassion? Why should we be compassionate people? Well, the need for compassion really speaks to both aspects of its definition. Both the ability to share in suffering and the willingness to mentally identify with the suffering of others. And maybe the way we can look at it is by looking at the opposite. Why do we resist compassion? Because the basis of compassion, whether it's sympathy or empathy, is, is to identify with our fellow human beings. And the thing is that we build up pretty strong defenses in ourselves in our arrogance, in our presumption, but also in our fear and anxiety that would distance us or alienate ourselves from our fellow human beings. Now, why is that? It's because we are very averse to suffering. Who wants to suffer? Nobody wants to suffer, right? Who said, yes, I enjoy suffering? We, we, we have terms for those people, right? Uh, we have places to put those people so they don't hurt themselves uh, because we understand that's a strange thing. And so we desperately do not want to suffer. And there has been a tendency in humanity from the very beginning, when we see people who are suffering, we want to isolate them. And the reason we want to isolate them is because we have this understandable misguided impulse to say, well, if these people are suffering, if we keep these people away from us, we won't have to suffer like they will. And it's that, that feeling of, of that antithesis. I don't want to be in your position, so I'm going to keep you away from me so I don't get into your position. Now, that distance that's being created might very well be spatial. And there might be times for it. I mean, there is a reason why we have a, a, a situation of quarantine. That we feel like there are certain people who are in a certain situation of illness that belong in 
buildings where they are alienated off to the side, being ministered to by those who are in uh, preparatory garments so that the contagion that they have uh, uh, happened upon uh, will not come upon us. Uh, and you see uh, the, the laws about le- leprosy, for instance, in Leviticus, uh, while, uh, you know, kind of made an example of in a lot of ways, are an ancient form of quarantine so as not to spread leprosy. And so there is uh, some of, of that that has some motivation. But at the same time, what this impulse has become has not just been really spatial, it's really relational. And uh, it generally involves us closing ourselves off from other people. And it doesn't have to do just with sickness. Uh, We see people who are in poor financial situations and suffering because of that. And we kind of close ourselves off to them by saying, well, they, they didn't work hard enough. They didn't do the things they were supposed to do. We don't want to imagine the situation being, well, actually, uh, some of us were born with more advantages, with uh, better family situations, better support networks, and more material resources, uh, that if those people had more material resources, they wouldn't be in the situation they were in. And by the way, if we had fewer material resources, we would be very much like them. Uh, That's very hard pill for us to swallow. And so it's much easier to try to find a way to blame the poor for why they're poor than to maybe see that we share some responsibility for that and that we would have to suffer with them because the last thing we want to imagine is that we would become poor like they are. Uh, We see somebody suffering in the throes of addiction, uh, somebody who's an alcoholic or who is uh, addicted to heroin. We want to find all kinds of reasons in their life why they are in that situation to explain it away that it would stay away from us. Well, it's because they uh, fell in the wrong crowd or because they just their genetic constitution meant that they were more susceptible to it. We don't want to imagine the fact that if they were in a situation more like ours, they wouldn't be in that situation. Of course, the real thing we're worried about is that if we were in their situation, we would have probably fallen prey to the same temptations and the same difficulties. Uh, we don't want to think of ourselves and don't want to be the ones who are in the position of being poor, of suffering, of being addicted, of, uh, of being in all these awful situations. And so we find ways to, to blame them and, and to think that uh, we are not going to experience what they experience because we have our standing, our wealth, our class, our privilege, our education, we're a certain nationality, uh, the generation in which we live, right? Uh, we look back to the things our ancestors in the, in the past suffered. We can't even imagine living the way they live because we've got all of this technology and all of the structures we've built to try to insulate us from the ravages of um, the, the perils of existence that they had to deal with in a much more or, um, unprotected way. And we're very much afraid that we will become like they are if we identify with them. And this is w- w- horrible because this is the work of the evil and this is the work of the powers and principalities because when we close ourselves off to other people like that and we create that distance between us and them, we are alienating ourselves from other people. We are kind of dehumanizing and demonizing a group of people in some degree or another. And that's evil. 
Because that is the exact opposite of compassion. It's the exact opposite of what God has done for us in Christ. And we have no justification for doing that. Because here is the ugly truth that we often don't want to hear. We are sinful just as they are. We have no real reason to say that we are insulated from things other people suffer. In Romans 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Titus 3, 3 through 8, that we are not deserving of what we've been given, and that by the grace of God, there go we. That we would be very much like them, probably, if we were in that same situation. That it is only by the grace of God that we are not in these difficult situations. And it's in trying to run away from that reality that leads us to this alienation and this distance, this throwing our lot of the powers and principalities and this vain attempt to conjure up some kind of potion that's going to render us immune from these difficulties and, and, and challenges that ravage the world. But when you find compassion and sympathy or empathy, that is where you see the reconciling work of God in Christ. In Ephesians 2 and 3, that's what Paul emphasizes, that God has reconciled us uh, to himself in Christ. That we did not do anything to deserve us. We were in sin. We were you know, dying nature children of wrath. But that God in his grace and mercy displayed this, this love for us in Jesus. He suffered for us, with us, and on our behalf. And this becomes a model for everything that follows. Because uh, a lot of times I think we struggle. What do we, how do we help people? How do you do the right thing? And I think our part of our problem is we overthink it. Because we need to be more like that Samaritan. He didn't have to think in that moment. He was just in that moment. And he saw his fellow man and he felt. He felt for that man. And he did the very simple thing. Which is how we show that we love our neighbor. And that is we, he did to that man what he would hope that man would have done for him if he were in that same situation. Again, the Samaritan should have no expectation that if the roles were reversed, and it was this Jewish man coming down the hill, seeing the Samaritan in this distress, uh, that he would do anything for him. Okay, that's, you know, whether he should have any expectation of it. But what would he want him to do? If we were the ones suffering, what would we want others to do for us? That is what we should do for others. It's so simple, isn't it? It's the basis of that story of the Good Samaritan. It's the basis of the golden rule of Matthew 7, verse 12. It's what loving your neighbor as yourself really means. And it all comes back to that decision that we have to make. To open ourselves up to feel for other people. That's how we can be the light of the world, because we have decided to be the ones who feel that seems so strange, right, to, to say that. But there's a reason why empathy is a lost art. Because empathy requires us to feel. And everything in modern society is working to anesthetize ourselves, to tranquilize ourselves, so that we don't feel. You know, this is one important thing, that, that important adage, that the opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. Notice that in, when Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, he has the, the most strongest warning, really, of all the, less, of all of the different churches. 
Uh, the other churches have problems. I mean, Laodicea is lukewarm, Sardis is dead, Thyatira's got some sin issues going on, for instance. But in Ephesus, they have left their first love. They have grown cold. They have grown indifferent. And if they don't change that, Jesus is going to remove their lampstand from its place. God can do a lot with people who hate. Because if you hate, you at least feel. There's not a lot God can do to the indifferent. Because they've lost feeling. And we have thought in our wisdom, quote-unquote, the worldly demonic wisdom, that really the problem was feeling that if we just looked at things in a cold, rational way, that was going to make things better. And uh, how many times have you seen feeling associated with hysteria? And the examples of feeling bringing out are always sensational. Uh, you know, the, uh, the populace whipping up people into a frenzy uh, to do all kinds of various things. Uh, people making irrational decisions based upon um, a very hedonistic way of looking at things according to passion. Uh, and certainly those are excesses that we ought to avoid. But the whole premise of being human is really to feel. And what makes us human is our ability to feel with and for our fellow human beings. And we are tempted in so many ways to stop feeling. Where you see so many people in so much pain and so much grief that you simply just can't bear it all. And the easiest thing to do is therefore to stop feeling. You can think about people in the helping professions where how do... Uh, EMTs and nurses and doctors and therapists, uh, even preachers. Uh, how do they keep going when they have heard so many awful stories, seen so many ugly things? Soldiers as well. You can think of a lot of people. A lot of times the way that they try to cope is by stopping to feel and to approach things without feeling. And it may be something that kind of helps them in a sense to overcome some of the difficulty and challenge, but it is, in the grand scheme of things, going to be a very difficult thing because if they stop feeling totally, they stop feeling toward their families, stop feeling toward themselves, it's not going to lead them to a good place, is it? If we have to stop feeling in order to continue to live, are we really still living? Because the fact of the matter is, uh, we have to identify with other people if we're going to love other people, if we're going to care for other people. Uh, the whole manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit is dependent upon that willingness to feel, to show compassion. Compassion is not listed as one of the manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit, which is very interesting. You'd expect it to be there. A recognition that Paul probably is not trying to put everything. I mean, humility is not in there either. Uh, but compassion absolutely un undergirds it all. Because compassion is saying, I will feel with. I will feel with. I will feel in and I will feel with. Because that's what we really need to do in order to love people. You know, How can we get outside of our own heads unless we're willing to identify with others? Just say, wait a second. What if I lived like this person lived? How would I see things? I'm not saying that we necessarily always have to agree with that perspective. But we at least need to get there. You look at our country today, and one of the main problems with our country today, right, is that you got two different tribes. And one of the very valid critiques of both tribes is that both tribes see things the way they see things. 
They fear their own fears. They see things the way they see things. And the way that the other sees things and what the other fears is just a mystery to them. Because there's that lack of feeling. It kind of harkens back to that Matthew 7 thing about not judging, but lest you be judged by the same standard. What's the example Jesus has there? That if you got this beam in your eye, you can't see the speck in your brother's eye, right? You have to take the beam out of your own eye to see the speck in your brother's eye. And so part of what that's saying is, is that we need to be uh, less convinced about ourselves, right? We need to be willing to feel with the other person and to look at the things through the, the way the other people see them. And it's going to broaden our perspective a little bit. And when we do that, it's very interesting. It's very easy to get very sharp and harsh in judgmentalism when you alienate yourself from people. But when people become closer, right, it becomes a lot harder to be so judgmental, to be so condemnatory. Now, this is where we have the obligatory, uh, we have to be careful lest we show compassion and empathize with uh, sin in a way that perpetuates sin. And you and people certainly do that. Uh, we see that very much in society. That's become the way that a lot of things that God has said is a condemned behavior has received societal approval because, you know, it's people have, have, have taken it from the realm of the other and, and see it in family and friends. And, and all of a sudden, it's, it's a lot harder to be so condemnatory of it when it's right in front of you. Um, but yet, even there, it's a reminder that all sin, and the, one of the problems that we have with sin is it's very easy to, to, say, to, to take the sins that we don't really feel tempted by and to kind of create the separation, right? It's very easy to, to really denounce and condemn the sins that we don't feel anything with. It's a lot harder to do that with the sins that we actually address and deal with. Uh, and even as we approach matters of sin, it, are we doing it in a judgmental way or an empathetic way? The judgmental way say, how dare you? How could you? You are wrong. That is disgusting. That is despicable. The empathetic way is, that is rough. I understand why you feel tempted to do that. I understand why that you might want to do that. But you've got to stay away from it. That's not going to really help you. That's not healthy for you. That's not going to lead you in a good place. In both of those situations we have pointed out the difficulties with following the path of sin. But in one way, we're identifying with people, and the other way, we are stepping at a remove from people. And to most of the world, when they think of Christianity, they think of the stepping away from and pointing fingers at, as opposed to being among and calling out of. And what did God do in Jesus? Did he stay from a remove and point fingers? No, he got around and and called out from. He lived in the midst of humans in the likeness of sinful flesh, not sinning, of course, but in the likeness of sinful flesh, and identified with people. If that's the way God has worked with us in Jesus, how do we think we're going to work with one another? We can't come at people from this posture uh, of finger-wagging, sharp judgmentalism from a remove, from the horror at the prospect of this sin but from the realization that we're all sinners and that maybe you aren't tempted by that sin the way that person is, but you're tempted by your own sins, right? And what if that person isn't tempted by the sins that you're tempted by and they were to treat you that way? Again, it goes back to the very basic principle. How would you want people to approach you when it comes to something that tempts you? That's how you should approach other people.
That is why we need to continue to feel toward people. Because when we become dead toward people, that's when we become selfish. That's when we become judgmental. That's when we become cold. That's when we become cynical. And that is when we are no longer able to do God's work in Christ. Because as long as we don't feel, we can't embody Jesus. Because Jesus, from the beginning until the end, felt. And therefore, we must feel. Even though what we feel may overwhelm us. Even though what we feel may cause us great grief and distress. That is the way of the cross. We're all sinners. We all still sin. We receive love and kindness and mercy from God. And because our standing before God is only based on those things, and we see it visibly in Jesus, we must thus show that same feeling toward others. So do we still feel? Do we have that acute feeling of compassion within our entrails? Do we look out our fellow man see them harassed with sin, helpless against it, and feel that twisting in ourselves that something needs to be done about it? Are we willing to identify with others in their difficulties? Or are we just standing back with our fingers out and wagging and condemning? This is why it's so important for us to follow the example of Jesus, who was not hardened by sin, but felt the grief and pain caused by sin, and that the, 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 the disease, this, the, the unhealth that invariably happens when we are lost in sin. He felt for people in their distress and in their pain. And he worked to alleviate it because he did for others and poured out love for others in his compassion. And we are to do the same. Let us have compassion on our fellow man as God has had compassion on us and obtain eternal life in full humanity. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful, Father, for your love, your care, and for your covenant loyalty, for your compassion that you have sent Jesus and the example of Jesus and how he loved and how he cared and how he felt and that he continued to feel and that he did not stop feeling. And we pray, Father, that you would give us the strength that we would continue to feel, that you would strengthen and sustain us even though that feeling will cause us great grief and distress. We pray, Father, that you would give us the ability to feel for all people, for our loved ones, for our enemies, for those who are near and those who are far off, for those who are wealthy and those who are poor, for those who share our political ideas and those who disagree with them, for those in other tribes and for those in our tribe. We pray, Father, that we would feel compassion toward our fellow man and that we would treat our fellow man as we would want them to treat us. We want to show love to others as we want to have love shown to us. When we see those who are in deep distress and pain, give us the strength to do what we can to alleviate their need uh, or provide a word of comfort to share with them, to let them know they are not alone and that they are loved. We pray, Father, when we see people who are heading in bad directions, that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin to act as if that that's none of our business, but that we approach them in love as we would want others to approach us and to encourage them to step away from the ways that are causing them such grief and distress, and to give them the strength and encouragement to follow the ways that lead to you. 
We pray, Father, for those who are ill, that you would heal them. For those who are in such great deep distress because of pain or suffering or illness or grief or loss or material deprivation, that you would give them comfort and, and provide for what they need. We pray that we would maintain peace and that justice and righteousness would, would come in the land and that all authorities and all people would work, that we would be able to live lives of peace and, and godliness and holiness in your sight. We pray, Father, that we would embody your Son in all times and all ways to resist the call of sin, to feel with our fellow man, to, to love our fellow man as you have loved us, and that we would share in that full humanity uh, as we are glorified by you on that day of resurrection when your Son returns. We look forward to that day, and it is his name that we pray. Amen. So again, why is compassion such an important part of righteousness in the Christian life? And why do we resist compassion? And how can we work so that we still feel? Love to hear your thoughts on that. If you uh, enjoyed this, please let us know. Subscribe to this uh, wherever you found us. And if we can be of any service, please reach out to us. We want to, to love and care for you and be of any service we can for you. Uh, you can find us at VenusChurchOfChrist.org or on social media. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to encourage one another again.